The gospel is good news. It is a message. It is an announcement of what God has done in Christ to save sinners. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, lived the perfect life of righteousness that we all failed to live. He died the death on the cross that all our sins deserved. And He resurrected from the dead as our only living Savior of sinners, our only hope. That's the Gospel. And the Gospel is a message of pure grace, a proclamation that our hope is not in our own efforts, not in our own works, not in our own merit. Our hope is only in Christ. We could say it like this. The grammar of the Gospel is indicative, not imperative. An indicative is a statement of fact. It is a proclamation or an announcement. An imperative is a command. It tells us what to do. The gospel is an indicative announcement of what Jesus has done for us. It is not an indicative command of what we need to do. When we lose that clarity, we begin the downward descent from a hope that is completely grounded in the grace of God and the sufficiency of Christ. We begin the downward descent. We smuggle our own works and effort and merit back in. We begin to deny Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But if we're going to take our entire Bibles seriously, we're going to pretty quickly encounter some very important, even challenging questions. Does this emphasis on the gospel as a message of pure grace, that indicative announcement of the true story of Jesus and all that he's done for us, does it diminish the role of good works in the Christian life. Because when I read my Bible, it would seem to me that God really cares about what we do. Jesus begins the parable about building your house on the rock and not the sand by saying, the wise man is he who hears my words and does them. Christ also urged the church in Ephesus to repent and do the works you did at the first. Peter wrote, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, so put off certain things, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Put off these works, put on these The Apostle John wrote, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The author of the book to the Hebrews wrote, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Paul wrote, even just after the verses from Ephesians that I just quoted about our salvation by grace as gift and not by works, Paul went on in practically the same breath to write that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, if we're not saved by our works, 
But saved people are clearly called to do good works. How do these two truths cohere? How do they fit together? And what exactly do we do with a text like the one we've just read? James chapter 2, verses, 20, verses 14 to 26, that say quite plainly on the page, we are not justified by faith alone when justification, which is God forgiving us all our sins and declaring us to be righteous, justification by faith alone has rightly been called the article on which the church stands or falls. But we're going to press into this passage today with a burden to answer those questions. But again, our goal isn't just to explain this justification that James talks about away, to make excuses for it. Rather, our goal is to understand the justification of James in such a way that we not only see that it does not contradict anything about the glory of the gospel of justification by faith alone, but also see how understanding the justification of James talked about here is critical to a healthy, balanced, grace-infused Christian life where we live out the implications of the gospel in the world. So let's, with the Lord's help, get together into the text. We have to first understand what the text is saying and what it is not saying. Verse 14 says explicitly, by means of a rhetorical question, that faith without works does not save. What good is it, my brothers, verse 14, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? The implied answer is obviously no, and that's made explicit down in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In verse 18, works have a verifying function. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will do what? I will show you my faith by my works. And in verse 26, the final verse in our section, it ends with this thudding finality, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Works are on the basis of the inerrant, and authoritative scriptures, incontrovertibly a non-negotiable indicator of whether faith is saving or dead. Because the text certainly does say that. But let's read it carefully. Because what the text does not say is that the works themselves are what make faith save. And the reason the text does not say that, is that such thinking would reveal not just a misunderstanding of the role of works in the Christian life, but a more fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of faith itself. Faith is not a saving power that needs to be bolstered or boosted by works. Faith is a connection to a saving power outside of ourselves. J. Gretchen Machen clarified this so helpful in his little book, What is Faith? Which is a great book to read if you're trying to figure out what faith is. What is faith? He wrote there that saving faith, listen to this, is a channel, not a force. 
a force works its way to get somewhere by its own power. A channel connects you to a power outside yourself and outside itself. What is the power outside of us that saving faith connects us to? The power that actually does the saving? A better question is not what is the power, but whom? Christ. Christian faith saves because it is connected to Christ. Listen to the emphasis of Colossians 3-4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Likewise, the emphasis of John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live, even though He dies. Thus, Machen goes on in that book to say, salvation does not depend on the strength of your faith, but it depends upon Christ. James is teaching us a critical lesson that saving faith is shown by good works in the saved person. But we must have crystal clarity that those works don't make faith saving because it was never actually the faith that saved you in the first place. It was Christ who saved you through faith. Thus, the Westminster Confession in chapter 11, paragraph 2. Faith receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness. What beautiful language. Faith receiving, that that channel as Machen talked about. Receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet, it is not alone in the person justified but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Now, we might think that it follows that if we worry, our faith is, is, is a dead faith. That, that it's not a saving faith, because, because we don't have good works. We might think it follows that Well, what we really need to do is is get busy with the, the, the working by love part. We need to add good works in order to turn our dead faith into saving faith. So we can say, look, there's there's works with it. It's it's not dead anymore. But if we think that, we're dead wrong. Because while faith without works is dead, listen to me, just adding works will never make a dead faith live. Again, the problem with dead faith, the reason it isn't saving faith, is that it's not actually linked up to the living Savior Jesus Christ. That's why there's no true spiritual fruit. That's why there's no works. Dead faith has no works because it has no Christ. So hear me on this. Again, you can diagnose dead faith by a lack of works. James teaches us that. But adding works to a dead faith will never make it live. Here's an illustration borrowed from Paul Tripp. Imagine a dead apple tree. 
How do you know that it's dead? How do you know that deep inside, deep down in the roots, it's a dead tree? Well, you know from what you can see. You know from the fact that it bears no fruit. Well, so too, you can know faith is dead when there's no fruit, when there's no good works. We get that already. That may be challenging. That may be uncomfortable. That, that may make us sit up and pay attention. But it's, but it's very clear. But keep learning from the tree. If I were to go to the dead apple tree and think to myself, well, this is very sad. This tree needs fixing. And I were to get out my staple gun and staple on some nice, ripe, beautiful, fresh apples to that tree. Would it now be alive? No, what will actually happen is not not only will the tree stay dead, the fruit will in time rot, and while there may be these shriveled up little apples stapled to the dead bark, it's not fooling anyone. So too, stapling good works onto a dead heart cannot make that dead heart live. The only one who can make a dead heart live is the one who died and behold, is now alive forevermore. Jesus again said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Jesus is the resurrected one. And it is only when the Holy Spirit of God takes the power of His resurrection and applies it in your very heart through regeneration that saving faith comes alive in us, and then flow out the good works that accompany saving faith, but always as faith's fruit, never as faith's root. Now, you may be thinking, well, this is all very well and good, but, 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 but there's a verse in my Bible. It's printed right there in the bulletin. We're not trying to hide it. It's printed right there in the text of Scripture. There's this verse... It might as well be printed in neon the way that it's blinking at me right now. What about James 2.24? What about that? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And to compound matters... James makes an appeal to Abraham to prove his point and even quotes the book of Genesis along the way when in Romans 4, Paul also makes an appeal to Abraham and quotes the same text, but his point is that we are not justified by works. It's Romans 4, verses 2 to 3, where Paul wrote, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. His point being, he was not justified by works. He was justified by faith. Paul goes on, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Someone once said that, well, it may at first seem Paul and James are standing face to face, having a duel here. In reality, Paul and James are like brothers in arms. Brother warriors standing back to back, together fighting off opposing foes. 
Paul, in Romans 4, is talking about that justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, that is the heart of the Gospel. That article on which the church stands or falls. John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, wrote that Paul's concern is how a guilty, convinced sinner comes through faith in the blood of Christ to have all his sins pardoned, to be accepted with God, and to obtain unto the heavenly inheritance that is to be acquitted and justified in the sight of God. That's the gospel. And the moment we think that our works are involved in the forgiveness of our sins, in in our acceptance before God, the declaration of our righteousness, or in earning or deserving salvation in any respect, we have departed from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Justification is by faith alone, not by works, because only the works of Jesus can justify a sinner. But is that what James is talking about? That's what Paul's talking about. But is that what James is talking about? Is James talking about that sort of justification before God? Is he talking about how we receive the remission of sins and become righteous in the sight of God? No. We already know what James is talking about. He's talking about the role of good works in the Christian life as confirmations, as evidences, as graces even in the life of the person who has already been saved by the blood of Christ. Paul and James are addressing different issues and they are making different arguments. Paul is talking about true faith, resting in Christ alone, that always, through being connected in union with Christ Himself, that, that, that faith that always results not only in justification, but in all other salvation benefits, in all other saving graces. James is coming after false faith that was never saving, nor could be, because true saving faith always bears fruit in the life of the person saved. Paul talks of precious faith, more precious than gold, worketh by love, Owen writes. Well, James talks of dead faith, a carcass without breath, the faith of devils, a wordy faith. And that distinction is actually borne out in the two appeals to Abraham when we read them carefully. Because we see that they are actually appeals for two very different purposes and two different moments in Abraham's life. In Romans 4 verse 3, Paul quotes Abraham from Genesis 15 when God promises to give Abraham children to outnumber the stars. The Bible says that in that moment, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This beautiful witness to justification by faith alone under the Old Covenant. That that is how the Old Testament saints were saved as well. They were saved in the promise of Christ to come. Paul appeals to that moment in Abraham's life to prove justification by faith alone. It wasn't Abraham's works. It was his faith in God's promise that connected him to that power of his justification, which is the same power of our justification, which is Christ alone. James also appeals to Abraham, but not to make the same point and not to the same moment in his life. James 2.21 says that Abraham was justified by works when? When he offered Isaac on the altar. That's not Genesis 15. That's Genesis 22. 
There was probably about 30 years between these two moments in Abraham's life. Thus, Paul's justification is a Genesis 15 justification of imputed righteousness. James' justification is a Genesis 22 justification giving evidence of that saving faith. That's why James 2.23 says that Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. The good work of Abraham's humble faithfulness. His willingness to go and do whatever the Lord called. Being willing even to sacrifice his own son justified or verified the existence of a previously existing justifying faith. These two apostles, James and Paul, are making two different points, appealing to two different moments in Abraham's life, and using the word justified in two different ways. Once more from John Owen, James does not at all inquire or determine how a sinner is justified before God, but how professors of the gospel can prove or demonstrate that they are so, and that they do not deceive themselves by trusting in a lifeless and barren faith. We, therefore, must with James insist on the necessity of good works in the Christian life, but only for the right reasons and only with a proper understanding of how the Bible's witness fits together as a whole and only while preaching the whole gospel of the whole Christ to whole sinners wholly in need of Him. And isn't it amazing That even this good work of Abraham that that justified in the sense that it verified and demonstrated his already existing saving faith in the promises of God. Isn't it amazing that the Lord even takes that good work of being willing to sacrifice His Son and stays His hand and provides a substitute and even in that moment gives us a staggering picture of the Gospel. as we begin to close, we need to see something critical here that remains. In emphasizing good works, James has not wandered off from God's grace, not even one step. We need to be very clear that a changed life is a profound grace. For many of us in the church today, we don't see that because our lives have been largely insulated from how devastating sin can be. And praise God for His protection. But in that, if in our sins, if we have tended to live and think like self-righteous Pharisees, if our weakness has been being a little too proud of our own good works, even beginning to feel like they do provide us a little bit of standing and merit, and we've got a pretty good spiritual resume going in the sight of God. If that's been our struggle, it can be confusing for James to talk about good works as a grace from God, even part of how He is loving us and redeeming us. But if you've scraped along the bitter, broken glass streets of what sin can do, an obedient, changed life of loving service is a profound token of God's love. It is redemptive. And that is why James does not just invoke a patriarch, Abraham, 
to prove his point, he also invokes a prostitute named Rahab. We don't like to say it out loud. We might not even realize we believe it. But we often think there are certain sins and certain sinners beyond the reach of God's grace. You may have a list in your head right now. Certain sins. Certain sinners that you just don't really believe ever will be saved. Or could ever really change. Never underestimate the redeeming grace of God in Christ to save a soul and change a life. Any soul. Any life. James 2.25 is a beautiful text. It is drenched in the grace of God. He's just talked about Abraham. The patriarch of patriarchs. And now he says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. If we think patriarchs like Abraham need less grace than prostitutes like Rahab, we have not yet understood the gospel. If we think a prostitute like Rahab can't become a precious daughter of God and walk a life of loving faithfulness, we have also not yet understood the gospel. I love how Rahab is talked about in the New Testament. She's mentioned not only in James 2, but also in Hebrews 11 and in Matthew 1. Hebrews 11, she's included with a long list of famous names like Moses and David. Those who provide a faith worthy of our emulation. Rahab's in there. Even more staggering. In Matthew 1, she shows up in Jesus' own human family tree. God's not hiding Rahab in reluctant shame. She's not just sort of barely saved and, you know, never really got her act together and I guess she she made it into the kingdom by inches. No, God holds this precious redeemed daughter out as a treasure and rejoices over her and says, look at my precious daughter. Just look at my Rahab. Look how my grace has saved her. Look what the blood of my Christ can do. The gospel is powerful enough to turn a prostitute into a precious, treasured, celebrated daughter of God. Because on the cross, Jesus was treated like every Rahab's sins deserved, so that any Rahab could be treated like his righteousness earned. Rahab could have been remembered for a lot of things, but by grace, what God remembers her for is her sweet obedience and changed Life And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. That's not a text that undermines the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a text that magnifies the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This isn't legalism. This is the beautiful mercy of Jesus. God through the power of His Spirit, changes lives we don't think can change. God loves people we don't, wouldn't think He would love. And then that love flows out through us as 
by the Spirit, the gospel works to conform patriarchs and prostitutes alike more and more into the image of His Son, the one who did the greatest work of all, the great work that we need, the work that showed the deepest love and the kindest mercy more than we could ever imagine. God shows His love for us in this while we were still sinners. Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word in all its parts. We thank You for those portions of Your Word that even challenge us. Lord, we pray that as we think about works in the Christian life, we would never ask them to do what they cannot do. Our works cannot save us. Our works cannot justify us in the sense of being forgiven our sins and declared righteous. We confess justification by faith alone. And yet, Lord, we pray that as Your Spirit is at work with us, as You have not just justified us, but are sanctifying us, Lord, I pray that we would bring forward the good works You have prepared for us to walk in. Works of love for neighbor works of sacrifice, works of mercy. Lord, I pray that as we engage that, it would again not be to be spiritual resume builders and say, look what a good worker I am, but rather to say, look how good the gospel is. Look how good my God is. I will serve Him all my life. I will deny myself for His sake. I will love others over myself. Oh Lord, I pray that you would foster this kind of community, that this kind of life would be lived here together among the saints of Grace Presbyterian Church in Mount Vernon. We pray that you would be at work and on the move here. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.